Morning, friends. Morning. Let's open our Bibles together to the Gospel of John. Continue working through just the first three chapters of John. A um, couple things while you're turning there. One, uh, as you have in your bulletin, the chain of love trip. I hope you'll consider that. I know that's it's it's a big ask um, to go. We want to help with money and, and try to make that work any way we can. But if, if God's laid that on your heart even at all, I, I ask you to pray about it, consider it. I am praying about it, considering it. Um, and, I, and Robin Hanstead, who leads Chain of Love, uh, you know, kind of in the United States, is the representative. Uh, when she was here a few months back, I asked her the question, well, if we bring a team or we bring multiple teams, is this actually going to be helpful for you? Or is it going to be a burden? Because sometimes you, know, you got... 10, 15 people coming from out of the country, it could be a burden. And she was very clear that, no, this would be a great help to them, in particular to disciple and care for the house parents. These are the people who are pouring out every day to kids who are, I mean, they're foster kids. They're, 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 there's, they've been through a lot. They, they've come out of trauma and so this is a lot that they have to pour out every day into those kids. They, they're happy to do it. They love to do it. But then we could come and bless them, pray for them, encourage them, teach them. And that excites me. That fires me up to be able to do that for them. Um, so we hope that you'll consider that. We hope you'll pray about that. And we hope that we can fill at least one team, maybe two teams, if God's moving, um, to go down next summer. Um, and be a blessing to them. So let's read together John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, this is your word, holy, inerrant, and inspired. It is true. And when we find ourselves out of conformity to it or disagreeing with it, it is us that needs to change, not it. It is always us who needs to change, not you. For even it is impossible for you to change. You don't need to change. We do. So we ask, Lord, that you would be with us as you are, according to your promise, that as we gather together, even two or three, there you are among us. Lord, here to save and to judge, to open the doors of heaven, or perhaps to close them to the hard-hearted who have ears but do not hear, who have eyes but do not see. So we pray that the scales would fall off of eyes, that ears would be open to hear the beauty of Jesus. To see you, Lord Jesus, as you are. Not only Lord, not only King, but Savior. Savior. The very ones who hung you on that tree are the ones you went to the tree for. And that is certainly us. So would you speak powerfully, Lord, as we have been thinking the last couple of days about what we are thankful for, and there is many things, there is much. We could could make a long list of things that we're thankful for, but most of all, more than anything, we are thankful for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The greatest gifts that can ever be given, we have been given in Christ. So we say thank you, and we want to respond now by worshiping through listening. Not to me mainly, but to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the Apostle John introduces us to a man named John. There's a lot of Johns. Uh, We call him John the Baptist. We know him as John the Baptist, and he's... Uh, An interesting guy. He's a godly guy, a good man, a man of character. Um, I think he was both, interesting and godly. I think John's a guy that uh, is really going to stir up the dinner conversation in interesting ways. If you have him at the table, if you have some neighbors that you want saved, make sure to invite them when you invite John, because he probably will call them to repentance. He will preach a little at the table. John is Jesus' cousin, if you remember. Um, He is Elizabeth's son. He was there when Mary and Elizabeth come into the room together. They're both pregnant, and he he jumps in the womb because the Messiah is there. Um, So he's related to Jesus, and, and Jesus himself tells us that aside from him, John is the greatest person to ever live. Matthew 11, 11. I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Did you know that? I'm sure in college you got assigned a biography on John the Baptist. I'm sure in elementary school on the, you know, the wall of heroes right between Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa was John the Baptist. 
Oh, no, he wasn't. I'm shocked to hear that. But the Son of God says this is the greatest man who ever lived aside from himself, so we probably should pay attention to his life. We probably should lean in. This man is great, Jesus says. The greatest. We probably need to hear that because he doesn't look so great to us. He ate bugs. He put honey on them. That's a nice move, but he ate bugs. That's weird. What are you doing? He, he, he's never been to Costco. He's never been to the pheasant. Like, he just eat bugs. And, you know, he's not fashionable. He has like a Jedi robe made of camel hair. It's, it's not cool. He's not cool at all. Probably had some truancy issues in school. You get the idea. This is someone Jesus thinks very highly of. So we should pay attention. And here's the reason John is so great. He views himself rightly and he views God rightly. He knows who he is, and he knows who God is. This is the mark of true greatness. Any great man or woman of God, this is what you can say about him. This is the source. You know yourself, and you know God. You're passionate about God, but you're not very, very into yourself. John is very passionate about God, but he's almost indifferent about himself. He's just kind of, you know, I'm not that important. So if you meet someone who is serious about God, but kind of lighthearted about everything else, it's a godly person. Do you know anyone like that? I'm looking at a lot of them right here. Seek them out. Search them out. Seek their wisdom. Gain wisdom. Everyone needs mentors. Everyone needs mentors. Everyone needs someone who's serious about walking with God. Help them be serious about walking with God. And it doesn't matter how old they are. I mean, if they're old, you know, a lot older than you, that's fine. That's great. But they don't have to be. What you're looking for is maturity. And sometimes God gives it to very young people. Sometimes he doesn't give it to very old people. So if you're older, you can have someone younger disciple you and mentor you because they're mature and vice versa. It doesn't matter. Look for maturity. A good mentor is someone who can see into the heart of things, the heart of man and the heart of God. They have a sense about how to handle things in life, the real stuff, the complex situations, complex relationships. They can see into it. They can navigate it. They can be helpful to you. They're thoughtful, studied, nuanced, filled with the Spirit. So you have a great combination of head and heart. It's not just one or the other. Seek them out. This has been one of the most fruitful pursuits in my life is to seek out godly mentors, men and women. Solomon tells us how much better to get wisdom than gold. To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Proverbs 16, 16. Do you think of wisdom as better than money? If someone said you can either learn from a godly Christian man or woman, 
or you get a $20,000 a year raise, what would you choose? Is that a tough choice? Are you wise? Because if you believe Solomon and you live accordingly, you are wise. If you say no to that proposition, you're a fool. It's a good test. Some of you, I'll say this, need to be more willing to be a mentor. Uh, you, you too quickly diminish what God can do through you. And that's my sense, is that we quickly go there. You know, who am I? I don't have the answers. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm not very, I can't speak very well. I don't know the Bible well enough. I, especially if somebody asks you to meet with them, to mentor them, your instinct should be to say yes. That's probably evidence that God is moving. Watch what he does. Watch what he does. If you're open to it. John the Baptist has the qualities of a great and wise man. We want to explore three of them. Three qualities of knowing himself and knowing God well. Number one, accepting his role. Accepting his role. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, you, ask him, who are you? He confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, well, then who are you? Elijah, prophet? No. They said, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Why do you, well, who do you say you are? I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said, Isaiah 40. John has come on the scene and he's getting famous. He's getting popular. This is why we have a committee of religious leaders going to him, finding him out in the desert. So in our day, John is trending. Okay, his sermons are going viral. The publishers are calling. Job offers are rolling in. Saturday Night Live wants him to host. Okay, he's getting popular. All you have to do, John, at this point, is own it. Step into your moment. Be the man. Say you're somebody. It's very tempting, as it would be for us. And think of how the end could justify the means for John. He could start a movement. I could turn Israel around. I mean, I'm getting traction here. I, if I go with these people, if I say I'm the man, I mean, think of the audience. I could get a podcast, I could get a book deal, I could get it all. And he turns it down. He turns it all down. At the moment of greatest temptation, you know it was tempting. He's a human being. He can freely say, I am not the Christ. I am not. My role is this, not this. I accept that. This is a good mantra for you to have, some of you especially. Uh, it is for me. To just repeat it over and over in your head every day, I am not the Christ. <laughs> I am not the Christ. When you act like you are the Christ, do things go well? Do things get better? Or do they get worse? Do they go badly? This can happen in all kinds of circumstances. For example, um, when you're excited about a particular point of theology and you think that you are the Christ, we call it the cage phase. 
okay? You, you, you need to be locked up in a cage for a little while until you stop trying to make every single person that you meet agree with you. I've been there. There was a lot of cages in seminary, I'll just tell you that. A lot of people need to be locked up because the lady in the drive-thru does not need to hear about election today. Okay, she doesn't care. She just not, just let it go. Let Jesus be the Christ. You don't need to do that. So sometimes we just need to be locked up when it comes to theology. Just stop, stop trying to convince everyone. You don't know everything. Just sit a couple of plays out. More seriously, it can happen in marriages. People thinking about getting married. Um, one person thinks they can fix the other person. I know he yells at me sometimes. I've seen him put his fist through a wall, but he'll change. Once we get married, he'll change. Not likely. Well, she's been unfaithful to me while we've dated, but once it's official, I know she'll be faithful. Probably not. I don't think he's a Christian, but I see him pray sometimes. He's open. He doesn't mind coming to church. I'm sure once we get married, I'll be able to bring him along. Probably going to be a hard road. Because you are not the Christ. All qualifiers, I put them all out there. You, you always marry a flawed person, of course. You, you don't really know that person. How could you? No one really knows each other when they get married. Um, and there are exceptions. Wonderful stories of God working through our mistakes, pouring out mercy and grace, um, where, where someone gets into that situation and God moves and God works and God does something unexpected. Absolutely. And if you're in that marriage, don't give up. You can't change your spouse, but you can keep your vows. Keep praying. Keep praying. Don't give up. But also be careful, guys, not to overestimate your ability to change someone. You are not the Christ. It's good to remember that. Churches can do this with pastors. Well, we see some red flags, but once we get a hold of him, we'll be able to take care of it. Well, he's not really a shepherd, but, you know, we got some good men here. They're going to disciple him up. It's going to be all right. Usually doesn't go very well. Parents do this. Put Messiah-like pressure on yourselves with your kids, especially those of you with adult kids, because once they're moving through high school, moving into college, moving out of the house, you have less control. You, you don't get to decide everything about their life like you once did. It's kind of nice right now for me and for Carrie. We get to decide a lot. We get to direct our kids a lot, disciple them in very strong ways, but there's going to come a time where we won't have that. Our authority will transform, hopefully, into influence. And so it can be tempting when you have kids growing up and you see them heading for rocks to grab the ship and try to steer it away. Because you see it. You see it clearly. But that's not your role. You are not the Christ. You can trust God. He loves them more than you do. Accepting your role as a parent 
especially with adult kids, whatever that is. It might just be physical support. You show up, you help with the kids, you clean the house, you help financially. By the way, give your money away to your kids when they actually need it. Not when you're 95 and they're 75, okay? They probably don't need the money then. Give it away early. That's when they need it. That's when people need it. It might be spiritual support, giving them counsel if they ask for it. It might be prayer, just praying for them. It might be being available, a friend, when they need it because their life is falling apart over here. They can count on you. There's tons of ways you can support your kids and play a vital role in their life, but you don't have to be the Christ. It's not going to work. It's going to go badly. It's tempting, but it's going to go badly. John understood, accepted his role. He understood and accepted Jesus' role. There is a Messiah. I'm just not him. (laughs) I want you to meet him. I want you to experience him, but it's not me. I'm not trying to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's his job. Just water for me. That's all I need. Just some water. I'll baptize, but he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. If John tried to baptize with the Holy Spirit, would that have gone well? Not really. His job in redemptive history is to do road construction, to make straight the path, to make smooth the path, to Jesus. We could use him on 9th Street right now. Remove some barriers, John. Make it smooth, please. Somebody. This is one of the greatest assignments that God has given you in your life, just to get out of the way with the people around you so you don't act like you're the Messiah because then they can't see Jesus. If you're in front of them, big, look at me, I'm going to save you. They can't see Jesus. So like John, we're just doing construction. I'm going to do some work here, okay, and I'm going to get out of the way so you have a path to Christ. That's his mission. That's a great principle for us to think of ourselves that way. Get out of the way. (laughs) Be helpful. Be used by God, but get out of the way. Number two, humility. Second quality we see in John, humility, verse 25. They asked him, why, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This is biblical humility, which C.S. Lewis rightly said is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself, It is thinking of yourself less. Write that down. Not thinking more of yourself, not less of yourself, but just thinking of yourself less. Guys, the essence of pride is just being self-focused. It's just, I'm just, what fills my mind all the time is me. What I'm thinking about all the time is me. Whether you're down on yourself, you're high on yourself, it's the same root. It's pride. And I I think we get this wrong a lot in Christian circles. We think that humility means beating yourself up. How how terrible a sinner I am. I'm going to out-sin you in terms of, like, whipping myself, shaming myself. I am the worst. I'm worse than you. That's not humility. Because who are you focused on? 
even though you're down on yourself, you're focused on yourself. It's not what John does. He doesn't say, I'm nobody, I'm worthless, I'm not qualified, I don't have any gifts. He acknowledges he has an important assignment from God to preach, to baptize, to prepare people's hearts for the Messiah. So there's no false modesty. False modesty is not humility. It is pride in virtuous clothing. You're gifted at something. You do something well. Someone compliments you. Just say thank you. Don't dismiss it. It's probably obvious to everyone. Did God help you do that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Give glory to God, but don't make a big thing of it. Whatever you have a hard time taking a compliment about is probably an area of pride. When someone compliments you and you get all weird inside, that's probably an area of pride. Because if it wasn't, it was just, oh, thanks, moving on. That's encouraging. Not this like, ah, inside. They liked, they liked it. They praised me. John doesn't think less of himself, but he also doesn't think more of himself. He is willing to do something that in his day, only slaves would do. Untie the dirty, nasty, gag-inducing sandals of their master. And they would have been gross. I mean, they would have been, they would have been nasty. John says, I would absolutely lower myself to untie Jesus' sandals, except I'm not even worthy of that. Because he's so great. This is what happens when you gaze upon Christ over and over and over again. And his greatness expands in your heart. You're willing to do more and more and more. Humble yourself. Do the lowest of the low for his sake. So the bigger he gets, the smaller you get. We're going to see that next week. He must increase. I must decrease. That's how it works. So if your view of Jesus is kind of here, then what you're willing to do for him is going to be about here. We want to see it go like this. John's like this. It's a big gap. Humble person says, yeah, I've got a role to play. It's important. I'm happy to do it. Let's get to work, but it's not about me. I'm just a servant. My life is not my own. I've been given so much grace. How could I not do this for my Lord? I saw a picture of that at a Weezer concert this summer. Great theological event that that was. Um, It was our kids' first concert. They did great. It was super fun. We realized we had pushed them a little too hard when there was an encore, and they were very disappointed about that. There's more. Just a couple more. Hang in there, guys. But what I noticed at the concert was the drummer. So where was the drummer? (laughs) Guitars, vocals, they're all up front, right at the front of the stage, front and center for everybody. The drummer is 40 feet back, you know, tucked away, not out front, not a big deal, clearly not a focus, did not get a lot of Screen time on the Jumbotron, okay? The people up front did. The guitar solo did. But is the drummer crucial? Yeah. Critical? Yeah. 
He did his job very well. Great drummer. Excellent. But he didn't have to be out front. He didn't have to be the focus. Was he dismissive of himself? I don't matter. It doesn't matter. I shouldn't even play if I can't be out front. No. He just did his work. He did it well. Served the team. And then took a bow and left. Didn't have to be up front. This is the kind of person that God is looking for. This is the kind of person that God can use. We need more drummers. We actually do need more drummers, but more spiritual drummers. This is what John the Baptist is like. How do you get there? How do you become self-forgetful as opposed to self-absorbed? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not focused on what you think of me. I'm not even focused on what I think of me. Not important. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. I mean, I can't see my own heart perfectly. I don't, my conscience is clear, but you know, that, doesn't, that only takes me so far. It is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. And where for the Christian has judgment been rendered? At the cross. You are so sinful that the Son of God had to die for you. You are so loved that He did die for you. That makes you free. That makes you free. You do not have to worry about what anybody else thinks. You do not have to worry about what you think of yourself. Whether you're doing well, you're not doing well. How is everyone thinking I'm doing? How am I stacking up compared to these people? What do I think? Am I, am I, am I meeting my own expectations? No, it's all been settled. You don't have to worry about being accepted by anyone because you are accepted in Christ. You don't have to be Worried about being righteous and good enough for other people because you are righteous in Christ. You don't have to worry about panicking when you mess up and you fail because you are forgiven in Christ. That is good news. It is freeing, so freeing. And God wants you to be free. That's why He sent Jesus. So that you would find the resources in Him that You maybe will get from each other momentarily, but then it will end. You won't get it, and you will be devastated. Or you do get it, and you will be proud. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that sets you free. Here's a practical challenge. If you're very self-conscious, it means you are self-absorbed. If you are very self-conscious, self-aware, thinking about yourself a lot, it means you're self-absorbed. It means you're not applying the gospel. And that is worthy of repentance, to turn away from me, 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 your mind turning over the things you, you should have done, you did all the time, away, and focus on Christ and on others. That's humility. You don't have to hunt for the perfect spiritual state. You know, well, I got to fix it. I got to get it right. The gospel kills self, self esteem, and self pity. 
the gospel kills self. It, it frees you from lying to yourself with self-esteem, self-talk. Okay? I am the maker of my own worth. I'm going to wrap myself in a blanket of worthiness. I am good enough. I am strong enough. I am talented. I can do anything. No, you can't. That's a lie. You're not worthy. You're not righteous. You're not good enough. Gospel frees you. You don't have to do that. You don't have to lie to yourself. And guess what? Down deep, you know it's a lie because you know you're a sinner. This is why self-help in and of itself does not work because we know, we know it's not true. The gospel frees you from lying to yourself with self-criticism, self-talk. Anybody been there? Anybody there right now? Mm -hmm. I'll always be like this. I'll never change. How could God love me? I hear that a lot. How could God love me? I don't even, I, I'm not sure I even believe that he does. That's a lie. That's a lie. You now have the resources to be a truly humble person. If you're not a Christian, Christianity offers you the resources to be truly humble. Just not focused on yourself. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be awesome? Gosh, it's exhausting thinking about myself all the time. The gospel makes you thoughtful yet fearless. Like John the Baptist confronted Herod. Yeah, Herod, when you cheat on um, your spouse with your brother's spouse and then marry her, that's not okay. Fearless. Cost him greatly. But he did what was right, not what was easy, because he knew where he stood with God. That was the power. A truly humble person is approachable, yet confident. They're patient, but decisive. Optimistic, yet realistic. They realize they can be wrong, but they live by faith, not by fear of getting it wrong. That's a humble person. Decisive, but I'm not perfect. I, I, I don't see all ends. This is the kind of person that God wants you to be. This is the kind of person you can be as you apply the gospel day by day, as you look at Jesus over and over again, crucified for you. The Lord has judged me, a great sinner, but has provided for me a great Savior. This is the power, the power of God unto salvation. Humility, number three, prioritizing the cross. quality of a godly man or woman is they prioritize the cross, as John does. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In the beginning was the word. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. This is Jesus' ordination to ministry. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I find it so interesting that this is the first thing out of John's mouth when he sees Jesus. Not, behold, a great teacher. Behold, a great moral philosopher. Behold, the leader of a great movement of self-sacrifice. Behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. He knows that Jesus has come to die. This is his mission. The atonement. The atonement. This is the power and the wisdom of God. Substitutionary mediation. Chew on that all week. Substitutionary mediation. This is Jesus' mission. This is what we build our life on, guys. This is everything. If you don't have this, if you don't have him dying in your place, you have no standing with God. You are a sinner. You cannot approach. You cannot have right relationship unless you have a sacrifice. This is what the blood on that altar, in the temple, in the tabernacle, caked on it for hundreds of years was all pointing to. You need blood if you're going to approach the living God who is holy, holy, holy. And now, not just an animal, but a person has come who is fulfilling our greatest need. And that is to have our sins taken from us and born by another, receiving back from him perfection. I've seen and have been in churches, Christian churches, that don't say much about Christ. Doesn't make sense, but it's true. I've been in a lot of Bible studies where you talk about history and you talk about theology and you talk about word studies and it's a lot of interesting stuff and there's no Christ. Have you experienced that? You know, we kind of hold the Bible this far away and we observe it and we look at it and we analyze it and dissect it and we study it and we think, okay, we're good. And there's no Jesus. There's no Christ. There's no gospel. It's like we've outsmarted ourselves. We got too smart for our own good. We think we can do the Christian life without Christ. What? And yet this is very common. You can go years without really hearing anything about Jesus and his substitutionary work, about him being the center of the Bible. This is a living book. It's not a dead book that we just analyze and look at. So, I mean, if you're in that study, please speak up. Please add life to it, because if it doesn't have Christ, it doesn't have life. It's all meaningless unless you approach God every single day by the blood of Jesus through the sin-bearing crucifixion of Jesus. This is the only way we approach God. It's why we say in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers. Okay, that's not token. All right? You cannot 
come into God's presence apart from coming through Jesus. There is one mediator between man and God, our Lord Jesus Christ. This has to be the heartbeat of your life. And, you know, I know, like we talk about John getting a little bit stale maybe for some of you and, and going deeper and pushing. I think the gospel, I think the cross, I think the crucifixion can, can be the same thing. Yeah, 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 I got it. No, I know that. Yeah, I read the track when I got saved. I'm good. Yeah, I mean, what, what, dude, we really need to keep going on and on about all this? The Bible certainly does. Be challenged in that, that this must be the heartbeat of your life. This must be the culture of your family. This must be the center of your devotional life. Yes, learn. Yes, study. But remember, it's all about Jesus. That's not just a f- token phrase. It really is. Let me end with a Puritan prayer I came across this week that I think captures it for us, and then we'll move into a a time of response. Lord Jesus, show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns, the pierced hands and feet, the bruised body, the dying cries. Thy blood is the blood of incarnate God, It's worth infinite, its value beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper, born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me as a shadow, intermingling with my every thought, my chain that holds me captive in the empire of my soul. Yet thy compassions yearn over me. Thy heart hastens to my rescue. Thy love endured my curse. Thy mercy bore my deserved stripes. Let me walk humbly in the lowest depths, bathed in thy blood, tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation in you. Lord Jesus, what mercy, what grace, Grace upon grace upon grace do we experience in Christ. I pray, Lord, for some here who have never known that. Grace. Where they have failed. But in that failure, you come to them and you say, I love you. Come, follow me. Come, be healed. Come, be changed. Come, Experience rivers of living water coming out of your heart. Life. And Lord, for the longtime Christian, I pray that this would never grow stale. Oh Lord, forgive us for our hardness of heart, for our apathy and complacency, that we are not amazed every day by the gospel. That we do not, every morning anew, when we see Jesus in the word, say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. It is amazing love. How can it be that thou, our God, should die for me? We pray this word would have its full effect on us now, O Lord, in Jesus' great name, amen.